Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Today, here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week, we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. Thanks, Scott. This is Mike Roth. I'm here with Ken Lewis from the New Lift Distilling Company. Thanks for joining us, Ken. Thanks for letting me be here. Before we get started, let me remind our listeners about some of the upcoming events. Uh, next week, we have uh, Matt Fisher from Curiosity Advertising. And uh, the following week, on the 31st of October, how appropriate Halloween, we're going to have Tom Quigley and... Tom owns with his wife a third-party administrator company called ClaimLinks. Tom is going to talk about how to take advantage of the Affordable Health Care Act from an employer perspective. Tom is a really animated guy and glad to have him on the show. Let's see. A little bit of a report. This week we did two successful uh, leadership programs, one in Columbus and one in Cincinnati, extremely well uh, received. If anyone you know is interested in us doing the leadership program for your company privately, uh, give Brittany a call here at 513-753-9400, extension 106. Okay. Uh, Next week, next Wednesday at 1130 a.m. to 2 p.m., we're going to have a special Sandler preview program called the Eight Sandler Rules That Have Stood the Test of Time. We're going to put that program on down at the Cincinnati Fire Museum at 315 West Court Street. It's $22, includes lunch for non-clients, $17 for clients, and it's free for Sandler President's Club members who bring a guest. Uh, But you do need to register. Again, call Brittany at 513-753-9400, extension 106, or you can email her directly at brittany.robinson.com at RothConsulting.net. Let's, uh, let me introduce you, Ken. Ken is a native Kentuckian, born and raised, and in fact still lives in Louisville. That's true. What part of uh, Kentucky uh, did you grow up in? Well, it was Louisville. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah. Uh, Louisville is uh, um, sort of west and north. West and north, okay. Uh, <laughs> of Kentucky. Yeah, Ken's wife, uh, Judith Axelrod, MD, is a developmental pediatrician, Ken has been married for 42 years. Uh, he's got two children, Molly, an Italian wine importer. 
Absolutely. That's pretty close to your business. Yes. And uh, Greg, who's in the U.S. Navy, one grandchild in Tokyo. Uh, and uh, Ken graduated from college with an English major uh, with highest honors from the University of Michigan, uh, an MAT degree. Uh, what is MAT? I know what SAT is. Well, that that was a, a Master of Arts in Teaching. That was a way. That was a graduate degree that you could get in one complete calendar year to be qualified to be a teacher. Okay. Uh, was that at Harvard? Yeah, that was at the Harvard School of Education. Good. And uh, Ken has taught English in grade school for the gifted students, uh, gifted and talented students in the Detroit suburbs for two years. Uh, I bet you're glad you're not there. <laughs> no comment. No comment. Okay. Uh, uh, Ken took on a failing liquor store from his uncle in Louisville at the age of 24 uh, as an income source while he continued to teach. Uh, stayed in the business, got as big as six stores with 350 employees, didn't like the corporate life, sold five of the six stores, and kept and expanded the Bellevue store, which I guess we call the party source today. That's the party source. Right. Uh, you sold the party sauce to the employees in an ESOP to become a licensed distillery and brewery. I guess in the state of Kentucky, you can't be a retailer and a distiller at the same time. That's true, Mike. It's called the three-tier system, and in general, uh, many states are like that. They, there's, uh, it's not allowed by law to be participating in more than one of the three tiers. Uh, the creation of the product, the distilling. Yeah, manufacturing, then distribution, and then Uh, either retailing or on-premise, whether it's a restaurant or a bar. Okay. Ken then started something called Eight Ball Brewing and the New Roof Distilling Company and an event center. That's true. Okay. Uh, Eight Ball Brewing uh, occupies the space at the back of the party source? Yes, it's at the very back of the uh, party source, accessible from the outside or from within the party source itself. Mm -hmm. And the New Roof Distilling, which we're going to talk about. Tell us about the event center. Sure. Well, the, the company then is comprised of the three uh, parts, which are the brewery, the eight ball brewing, uh, New Roof Distilling, and then we have an event center, which is I built a, a really beautiful building uh, on the campus of the party source. I'm sure some of your listeners have uh, seen it or even taken a tour at the distillery. And as part of uh, the construction process, we included two event center spaces. Mm-hmm. That includes the premier places, the entire third floor, and we have indoor-outdoor area. We have these large garage doors that swing open in decent weather so you can go out onto the balcony, and it's really beautiful up there with a great view. You can see the river. We hold 150 to 200 people. We have a full catering kitchen. We have on the second floor a very high-tech room. It's perfect for corporate training or smaller events, and it'll hold 50 to 75 people. And the idea of the event center is uh, it brings in a little bit of income, but the main thing is as a way of building our brand so that folks can come and have a great experience at the event center, whether they're going to a wedding reception or it's a corporate training event or just a myriad of activities happen there. Um, And then they have a nice experience. They've learned where the New Rift Distillery is. Uh, So it's part of our marketing uh, program in a way of getting people to identify and and burnish our brand. Hmm. You think it would be a good place to run one of my builders, business builder series programs? Absolutely. Uh, uh, I'd love to talk to you about that. <laughs> Maybe not on air, but after after the program. Yeah, that's good. We we, we intentionally selected the uh, the first twelve of those 
to, to run country clubs around the area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were on the north and the west side of town. Yes. We've only done one on the Kentucky side of the river, mm-hmm. and uh, we've got to do more on the Kentucky side of the well, river. Well, we'd love to have you. In fact, uh, I met you at a rotary function at the event center. That's right. So That's we're, right. we're doing a wide variety of events, and it's nice because we're right next to downtown, and there's lots of free parking. Easy to get to. Right, easy to get to, lots of free parking. Right park. on the campus of the party source. Easy to get to. Mm-hmm. I bet the views were great there of the, yeah. the fireworks. Well, the fireworks, it was our first fireworks up there, and we actually didn't rent it out deliberately because we wanted to see how the view was. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's partially restricted because there's a condo and an apartment complex between us and the river. But you can see it, but it's a little to the side. Not perfect. But on the other hand, you've got restrooms, you've got a catering kitchen. There's a lot of things that make up for not perfect sighting of the uh, fireworks and the parking. Yeah, parking so parking is at a premium. <laughs> Parking's good as long and as you, you don't, don't have hide. to leave immediately. As long as you don't have to leave immediately. I was just going to say that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so uh, I see that you, you've intended to finish your career by guiding New Rift to be one of the great small distilleries of the world. That's our goal. Okay. So that only uh, raises my question. What does small mean? Well, that's how do you a, measure that? That's a good question. Uh, I've been accused of that a lot. <laughs> you ask a lot of good questions. Uh, first of all, just in general, in the bourbon business, a lot of the uh, terms are uh, kind of in the eye of the beholder, like what is small batch? That's immediately what comes to mind. Often you pay 40 or $50 for a bottle of bourbon, and it says small batch. Well, there's no federal or legal definition of what that is, so it's kind of up to the manufacturer. So Jim Beam's notion of what a small batch is, bourbon is, is a little different from a craft distillery's notion. But, um, um, and I think, you know, that that kind of explains a little, you know, small business, small batch, uh, the allied terms like that. Small uh, small batch means different things to different people. It's in the eye of the beholder. Good. So when you say small batch, does that mean the bourbon uh, will taste different from batch one to batch two? Absolutely. Um, uh, the idea of batching or, or is um, the bigger the distillery, the more the, the more number of barrels they produce in a batch. The idea is to get to have a completely consistent product. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, Jack Daniels, which of course is not bourbon, it's Tennessee whiskey. But just to make the point, there will be two thousand barrels in each dump or combination of of melding from two thousand barrels to make a run of Jack Daniels. The idea is then any individual variations from the the barrels is kind of factored out. So the whole point of having small batch, or you get then to the question of single barrel, is then you're celebrating the idiosyncrasies and the differences amongst uh, small small numbers of barrels. Can can most people actually taste the differences between batch one and batch two, batch three? Um, Or are they so similar that... You can't really tell. I would say that uh, in my case, I can't tell the difference. I don't have a professional palate. Uh, I employ a couple of people that could t- tell the difference. But you're entirely right, Mike, that I would say for the vast majority of people, they could not really tell the difference. Mm-hmm. So just on the label. It's a lot of marketing with the idea of small batch. Uh, there's a lot to be said for larger dumps, as we call them in the industry, and having a little more consistency. So you so, average it out over 
you kind of average it out and you have a flavor profile. And the consumer generally expects from a Jack Daniels or an Old Forester or a Woodford Reserve, they're they're looking for a certain product every time they open the bottle. Mm-hmm. So they want that consistency. Yeah, you, you know, open a bottle of Maker's Mark, it should always taste yeah, the same. Yeah, it should always taste the same. So you have a large dump, many barrels, so you get rid of any idiosyncrasies of individual barrels. Mm-hmm. Do, do you guys in the uh, distilling business keep uh, one year's barrels uh, to even out the uh, the taste over many years? Yes. I mean, there's a whole science in a sense to, uh, and we're not at that as a brand new startup, but but in the industry and in the rest of Kentucky, the what we call the heritage distilleries, that's the older, larger distilleries, there's a whole science to how you pull barrels from different parts of a warehouse, of a warehouse because they age differently and they have different flavor characteristics. So they'll pull from different parts of the warehouse to meld, you know, into these dumps and, and have a consistent product. Now, Ken has agreed to uh, take callers from our listening audience. The phone number is the same as it's been. It's 646-595-4916, and we'll be able to screen the calls during the commercial break. Uh, Ken, let me ask you uh, one more question before we go to a commercial break. Uh, In most of the uh, traditional bourbon distilleries, they have uh, large buildings that are filled with barrels. Mm -hmm. Uh, They get up at the top of the building. It gets very cold uh, in the winter and and very hot in the summer. True. And uh, when you step into those buildings, you smell the the beverage. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How are you guys at uh, New Riff doing this aging process? We we actually uh, have a separate warehouse, which is two miles away, which is in Newport. The distillery itself on the campus of the party source is in Newport, and the warehouse is two miles away. And it's an old brick building, dates back to 1910, tucked away uh, along the Licking River. Um, the difference in our warehouse aging is going to be that we're only going about uh, four barrels high. So we're only one story stacking the barrels four high. Okay. Whereas in the warehouses you're referring to, which, which are called Rick Houses, at a, at, a, at a big Kentucky distillery, they'll have multiple floors uh, going up. So it might be seven barrels high in a Rick but there might be seven or eight floors of that. So in a sense, it's 100 barrels high. So there's a, a huge temperature and aging differential uh, between a large, tall warehouse and ours, which is only uh, one story. Is your warehouse also federal controlled the way the others are? Everything in the industry is highly federally controlled, mainly so they keep very close tabs on their tax money. That's what they're really looking for. Yes, there's lots of layers of regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to take a uh, short commercial break here. We're going to uh, listen to uh, Jimmy Fox talk about uh, Tip Club. The next Tip Club meeting is coming up on November 20th. That's a Thursday morning from 7.30 a.m. to uh, 9 a.m. And, Jimmy, why don't you take it away? Hi, I'm Jimmy Fox of Tip Club. Tip Club is a professional networking organization whose members help each other succeed. We meet once per month and provide a forum where business-to-business professionals are able to connect with more desirable opportunities and build long-term strategic partnerships. I'm inviting Cincinnati Business Talk listeners to come to our free networking event. 
You'll have the opportunity to meet new people, share leads and referrals, and grow your business through strategic alliances. Membership in our Cincinnati group is open to only one person per specific trade or occupation. Business-to-business professionals only, please. We do not accept multi-level marketing or recruiting-driven memberships. This is our only group in Cincinnati. We'll meet on the third Thursday of the month from 7.30 to 9 a.m. at Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, 4357 Ferguson Drive, Cincinnati, Ohio. To reserve a seat, please go to www.tipclub.com and click on the Events tab at the top of the page. Then, just scroll down the list until you come to the Cincinnati event. Or you may call 800-798-0270. That's 1-800-798-0270. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you at our next networking event. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with uh, Ken Lewis from the New Rift Distilling Company. Ken, a lot of people don't understand in the process of making bourbon, uh, how long is it from the time that you actually uh, complete distilling a batch, putting it in a barrel, Mm -hmm. to the time that you can actually legally sell it? Well, you can legally sell it almost instantly if you want to. Uh, there are requirements about how it's labeled. So in order, in order to be a uh, straight bourbon, mm-hmm. uh, it has to be a minimum of two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are just requirements of how the labeling works. In our case, uh, as a startup craft distillery, uh, we're just getting going. And our first product, uh, we have about four or 500 barrels at this point, but we're three and a half years. We want to have it about four years aged, but we're going to listen to the whiskey, of course, and release it when it's ready. But we're about four years from three and a half to four years from having product to sell to the public. That's really the big challenge of starting up a distillery. It's not a very ordinary activity for someone in in the 60s, which is in my age group, uh, to be doing. (laughs) You've got to wait a long time for some positive cash flow. Yeah. Uh, Explain for our listeners what listening to the the bourbon is. Well, you know, a little bit that's, Satirical, but but basically what I'm saying is that you have to have the professional palate to taste the whiskey as it uh, goes along, say after three years, three and a half years, and test several different barrels, different parts of the uh, rickhouse or the warehouse. And then when you think that it's in a good spot, when it's tasting mighty fine, that's when you can begin thinking about releasing it. You have to remember that this is not just Maybe distilling is a little bit of science, but it's an awful, awful lot of art and craft as well. And the human palate has to determine when something is entirely ready. It's a bit of a subjective, educated subjective judgment, uh, but that's kind of the art. And we're determined to have a high-quality product, so we don't want to release too early and do anything to harm our reputation. So how many people do you have on staff that are professional tasters or smellers of the bourbon? Um we have one primary person that I think really has a world-class uh, distilled spirits palate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think several of our distillers are educating themselves. We go through sensory evaluations, um, and myself and several others, I think, are coming along, and we'll learn a little bit with the help of this other person. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a, a learned skill. Oh, it's absolutely a learned skill. I mean, um, uh, 
it, it takes a in this case uh, our whiskey guy as we call him Jay Arisman he's wonderful uh, he comes out of a strong wine background so he had an educated wine palate mm-hmm. to start with and then it just takes a lot of experience and I know that sounds like a bunch of fun what could be a better job than tasting whiskey or tasting wine but really any professional doing it it's hard work uh, and you're pretty burned out at the end of a of a sampling session when you're tasting 60 or 80 or 100 distilled spirits or wine. And don't forget, Mike, you're spitting all the way along. You're right. doing your best not to take in any of that alcohol. You, you taste it and, and take take it right back Yeah, out. you, you, you really, palate. absolutely. So, I mean, it's hard work. It, it sounds like it'd be fun, but it's really a lot of work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, how often uh, are the, the barrels in the rickhouse tasted or tested? Uh, I'm sure every distillery will do it separately. It's very important. P- the p- uh, particular uh, palate that you want is actually to taste during fermentation and during distillation when you have fresh product. Because if you're picking up something that's wrong, if you've made a mistake in the process, it's a very complicated uh, art form. Uh, you want to pick it up quickly, as quickly as possible. You don't want to be waiting you know, for years later and you've wasted the barrels uh, to find out that there's something amiss in the production process. But, yes, we'll taste uh, every four to six months mm-hmm. and see how we're coming along. It's it's kind of fun as a startup to see how our babies are, are, are developing. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, the barrels themselves? Sure. Barrels, it's incredibly important in the bourbon business. Uh, it's said, generally agreed, that about 60% of the final flavor and taste profile of bourbon actually comes from the barrel. And no one really knows exactly what's happening. It's one of those wonderful mysteries of, of life, you know, that was uh, discovered 200, 250 years ago about uh, barrel aging. No one's quite sure about why and how the mystery works, but something occurs over that four or five, even longer years uh, that transforms a, a clear liquid uh, into something that's quite different and quite marvelous. Uh, so barrels are, are just a terribly important part of the entire process. By law, they have to be brand new. Mm-hmm. You can't reuse them. They have to be oak, mm-hmm. and they have to be charred in order to make bourbon. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you guys buy your barrels from the same people that make them for the other uh, distilleries? Yes. There's really only a handful of companies making barrels. And in fact, Mike, uh, we're currently in a barrel shortage because, you know, the bourbon business is booming right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Americans and also people in the rest of the world are getting very attuned to what we call brown goods, which are uh, any kind of whiskey, whether it's Canadian whiskey or Scotch whiskey or Japanese whiskey or American whiskey or Tennessee whiskey or bourbon or rye, for instance, is a brown good, just referring to the color. Mm-hmm. And that whole taste profile of having more flavor, more character, more body, more mouthfeel. It's actually a trend right now away from vodka and away from more of the clear spirits toward products with a lot more body and zest and, and terroir or you know something of the earth uh, where it came from. So anyway, there's a huge bourbon boom going on. And actually, right now, there's a barrel shortage. Uh, every distillery would like to have a few more barrels than they're currently able to get. Really? So it's like an allocation situation? It is. Everybody's on allocation. They're trying to ramp up production. But, again, uh, making barrels in the cooperage process, which is a wonderful and interesting uh, art form in itself, a craft, uh, you just can't get new coopers. You can't get new loggers. You can't, you know, immediately within six months or a year ramp up production. Everyone's working on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, I guess uh, about a year ago, I heard about a uh, a company up in Cleveland making mm-hmm. a, a brown product. You, yep. In, in a process that almost sounded like pressure cooking. Yep. Uh, won't name any names. No names. Um, yes. I mean, there's. Uh, I'm a craft distiller. We're trying to do things very much the right way. Uh, you know, our name, just as an aside, New Riff, uh, is a take. A riff is like a guitar riff. It's yeah. a musical term. It's a musical term. And the idea of it is when you do a riff, it's like I'm a Jimi Hendrix fan and, you know, 40 years later, I want to take one of his songs and do my own little interpretation of it. It's a very respectful thing. It's because I love Jimi Hendrix, and I want to just do my tune, bring it up to date, do a little something, my own jig with it. Uh, And that's what we mean by new riff, is we're very respectful of the 250-year tradition before us, but we want to play our tune, sing our song, make our own 21st century version of of, uh, bourbon. And, you know, that's that's what we're doing. Now, in the case of some other small craft distilleries, they're not prepared to wait. It's a tough financial haul to wait three, four, five years uh, to have your product right. come to you, market. You still have to pay your mortgage. Well, you've got to pay a lot of things. A lot of Our help is very expensive. The distiller is expensive. The products, the barrels, the uh, you know, running those boilers, everything that you can imagine in a, in a, a business, we have to carry. We have a burn rate. We're mm-hmm. just like a tech company. We have a burn rate, and we've got to wait our three or four years to turn into positive cash flow. So small distillers around the country are trying a few things that I don't necessarily approve of, which uh, to try and bring their product to maturity faster. And one of those, several of those ways are, for instance, smaller barrels. Instead of using 53-gallon traditional barrels, if you have a barrel that's only five gallons, you know, that. the idea is you're around a lot more wood. There's there's uh, people that believe shaking up the barrels uh, all the time. So you're constantly moving it around, maybe putting it in a machine or something. Uh, you can do some uh, uh, technological advances like the folks in Cleveland to try, like you say, almost pressurize to see if you can get it pumping in and out of the wood mm-hmm. and get that product to market quicker. Have uh, <clears> you ever tasted know, any of it? Um, I, have t- uh, had, I have tasted the product coming out of uh, Cleveland. And, you know, interesting, Mike, about taste is how much is, especially for those of us who are not really professionals, how much is what we're really tasting or how much we're preconceived to think of what we are about to taste. So if we're tasting $100 wine and we know it's $100 versus a $10 wine, we're pretty much already organized to think it's a better wine. So I'm a little prejudiced about those techniques. I was probably a little prejudiced. I didn't like the product. Okay. (laughs) You know, but it may also be the... uh, Coca-Cola Taste Challenge versus Pepsi. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. Sure. Uh, when I took it the first time, I immediately identified the Pepsi-Cola. And she said, no, Mr. Roth, you got that wrong. I said, what's wrong with that? She said, I asked you which one you liked better, not one which was the Coke and which was the Pepsi. Uh-huh. So it's the question technique. Right. We have a, you know, I was a liquor retailer for 38 years. I, I started the party source and Ran that for 22 years before selling it to my employees in order to become licensed as a distiller. And there was uh, many cases, but a very famous one, oh, five or six years ago, was uh, going to a uh, small uh, uh, hipster type bar in, in Brooklyn uh, with 30 year old, uh, you know, folks. Millennials, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, 
the vast majority of those folks were drinking Grey Goose vodka, which is maybe $30 a bottle, uh, something like that. And they did a blind taste test, and it came out that about 80% of those people of the, of the control group actually preferred a different vodka, Smirnoff, which was only uh, 12 or $14 a bottle. Mm. Well, the, interesting, the most interesting thing was not that how much just our imagery of a product and the price we're paying for it affects our sensory evaluation of it. That's, that's interesting in and of itself. But even more interesting was going back the next night, and they were still drinking Grey Goose. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Um, again, if you have any questions for, uh, for Ken, the call-in number is 595 uh, I'm sorry, it was 646-595-4916. It's interesting, a few years ago at the Rotary Picnic, uh, I won a bottle or two of uh, Roth vodka. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I had no idea what it was. And uh, several people op- opened their bottles, and they said, boy, it tastes terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Turned out it wasn't even made the Russian way. So uh, you always got to read the label find out what you're actually getting. We're going to uh, take a break here, and we're going to listen to a uh, couple of uh, Sandler commercials, and then we'll be right back. Imagine you just left your prospect's office, and he now has your proposal, quote, or estimate. What do you suppose he's going to do with that valuable information that you just gave him for free? Call you tomorrow with an order? Get real! He's shopping it around to the competition. Hi, this is Mike Roth, founder of Roth & Associates. I'm the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. I'm constantly amazed how salespeople operate. They believe a prospect asking for a proposal means the sale is as good as closed. Face it, trained prospects will turn you into an unpaid consultant. For over 20 years, we've been coaching, training, and challenging professionals who are 100% committed to long-term sales growth and profitability, no matter what it takes. If you're deadly serious about increasing sales, call me at 513-646-6523. Find out how Sandler Training can make you better, faster, and stronger. Or register now for our next open house, 513-646-6523. This is Mike Roth, the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. Hi, this is Mike Roth, founder of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, the most experienced Sandler sales trainer in Cincinnati. You've heard our commercials about sales and sales management, but you haven't made the call for some reason. Maybe you're having your best year ever. Maybe you think a sales development company won't work in your industry. You're different. I wish I had a nickel for every time I heard that. Maybe you're afraid that if you called, you'd buy something. If you're happy with all your sales and profits and believe you have all the answers or simply don't see yourself investing in yourself or your people, then don't make the call. We have nothing for you. For over 20 years, we've been coaching, mentoring, business owners, and sales professionals who are serious about their careers. So if you believe that Sandler Sales Training might make you better, faster, meaner, and stronger, call me at 513 646 6523. Or register for our next open house. Roth and Associates, the most experienced sales trainer in Cincinnati. You can check us at www.rothconsulting.net. This is Mike Roth. I'm back with Ken Lewis. Uh, Ken, it, it, it occurred to me during the break. Uh, so you got all these, all this uh, product in barrels in, in the warehouse. Mm-hmm. How are you going to get them in bottles? Well, we uh, we're actually bottling right now. We have a we're a small distillery. I mean, we're we're a uh, I forget what the correct term is for that. We're like a baby grand piano or large shrimp, but we're a big small distillery. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now we're doing some uh, bottling. We've got like four people working away at our little 
forehead bottler uh, back at the distillery because we're releasing our new make, which is product that's right off the still but uh, gauged or diluted down to 90 proof, and it has a lot of uh, vibrancy and flavor and texture and quality, and we're selling it as the anti-vodka. It's sort of like when you want to give up on your flavorless, odorless, tasteless, we say useless vodka and have something with a little body and character. Um, we have a, a, a bourbon that hasn't been aged in any barrels or rye uh, at this point. So that's what we're bottling right now. So, so, so that's we're, like, we're tackling that problem of bottling, and it's it's a lot of fun. Is that what I call white lightning? No. Now, white lightning, you're referring to moonshine. Oh, okay. Okay, the moonshine has got a lot cheaper ingredients and a lot cheaper process. This is going through the actual uh, high-quality bourbon and rye uh, process, uh, mash bill, and then distillation. It's just that it's not going into a barrel yet. So you don't have any of the barrel characteristics. So it's a clear liquid. It is a clear, so like it works great for all these different kind of cocktails. And um, you said you're diluting it down to what proof? 90 proof. 90 proof, yeah. Because it comes off the still at 135 proof. So you definitely want to, yeah, that's a, you sample some of that, it takes you back. <laughs> Pick you up a little and set you back a foot. Yeah, I bet it could. <laughs> so, when will you have uh, that available? The new make, we actually have it in our uh, gift shop at the distillery, and it'll be in some uh, Northern Kentucky stores like the Party Source, uh, middle of next week. Oh, okay. So we're excited about it. It's a new just product. Get a, just get introduction. A now, are you actually bottling in the distillery? Or? We are. Okay. Yes. Uh, that's good. Let me ask you a uh, one of my favorite questions. Ken, you've been you've been leading people for how many years? Well, I was in the liquor business for 38 years, uh, um, and one time had up to about uh, 350 people. So that's a long time, uh, most of a career, I'd say, for most people. Good. Perhaps you can give our listeners a leadership tip. Leadership tip. Well, the I, I think the key again. I'm a small business person, and I think it's a whole different universe being in a larger corporate environment. So I'm, I have to come out of my own experience. Um, I've had some people tell us that uh, the word leadership is a poor word because it's got multiple meanings. Hmm. And a, a great leader in a large publicly held company may not do as well in a small private company. I think, it's a, I think it's a, there's some ways they intersect, but I think there are two different skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I'd be very good in a, in a big corporate environment. Um, but I think I have some strengths in leadership and building a team in a smaller environment. Um, and that's why when I actually got to be too big, I actually was uncomfortable and was found I wasn't doing things I was particularly good at. Um, and I deliberately went backwards. I call it jumping off the capitalist train that was speeding forward uh, and sold some stores and got smaller. Uh, and it actually made me happier and I think made me a better employer. But I think the, the key for us in the world we're in today is how do we create meaningful jobs for people. And I think I think it's in decline to have meaningful jobs. And that's what younger people, I find, the 25, 30-year-olds, are particularly interested in is how do they have responsibility? How do they have input? How are they appreciated for their minds and not just for their, their backs or their hard work? So the main thing for me is how do you create an environment uh, that provides meaningful work uh, particularly for younger people today mm-hmm. that that have grown up and and uh, want very quickly in their careers to have a lot of responsibility and want their jobs to mean something, not just to be a cog in a much larger uh, environment. So for me, that's been the most exciting thing about starting a second venture, a second career in a sense, 
uh, with starting a new team and, and providing those kinds of responsibilities for people. And I think the answer is when you're able to provide that leadership and give people meaningful work, share the vision, show them where, where we're going, give them the tools to get it done, and then get the heck out of their way. That, to me, is, is what we do in small business at our best. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you treat millennials different than you would treat uh, baby boomers, let's say? I think there's been a shift, Mike, and I, I know you've seen it. You're in leadership training and mm-hmm. a real professional, so you, you know the answer to the, that question is yes. Um, you know, I think my generation or the boomer generation uh, was much more oriented to just working our way up a career ladder, putting in the hard work and, and the time to, to achieve things. We believe more in deferred gratification, and the opposite tends to be true of, of younger folks today is they want a lot more now. It's a lot more of immediacy. Uh, they want a lot more personal gratification in the job space. They uh, want to work with some alternate uh, uh uh, kind of modes of, of getting the job done. They certainly want responsibility. They want to be respected. They want to be appreciated. They want to be patted on the back a lot more than the boomers did. I think you're familiar with that mm-hmm. yourself, mm-hmm. aren't you? <laughs> yeah, w- w- that question came up uh, this week in the leadership program. Yes, it, it is different. And, uh, yeah, they have to be treat- every generation has to be treated a little bit differently. Yes. Uh, h- how are you going to market uh, with the planning on going to market with the product when you when you get, you know, a thousand cases of uh, finished right. product. When we ramp up, and particularly when we're bringing out our bourbon and rye in three and a half or four years, it, it's an interesting question because on the one hand, we certainly don't have classic budgets, big budgets for, for, for advertising. And, you know, the question is, uh, gets to be, you know, why should someone want our product over a maker's mark, mm-hmm. excellent product, uh, uh, or Buffalo Trace or so many of the other uh, heritage distillers. Well, I think the main thing is that that we have going for us, and it's part of the whole craft movement in general, is you want to be very local. You want to be identified with your local environment. You want to be making a very authentic product. You want to have a handcrafted product, um, and you want to be selling something that's an environmentally sound uh, and healthy product in that regard, uh, taking respect for the environment. And I think that's the key for our marketing is we want to be strongly identified with all of Cincinnati um, and Southern Ohio because it's a great uh, population. It's a sophisticated population. And just as people are with craft brewing, they want to support a local product. That's why we do tours. That's why we have the event center. Uh, You know, if we're making a product that's at least comparable to the other great uh, distilleries of Kentucky, then people say, yeah, but that's that's in my community. I know those people. I, I went to a rotary meeting with, with Ken, or or I went to the event center sure. and had a great time there. I took the free tour and had a nice experience. So I think that is social media and, and banking on the idea of being part of uh, the local community in a, a, a wide 50-mile area is, is what it's about. Have you dealt with the question about the water? Some uh, Some of the traditional distillers, talk about how their water is filtered through the limestone rocks that are available in their area. Well, you know, your listeners are probably going to think that I've asked you to ask me this question, and you can tell them I didn't because we actually, and this is really an enjoyable subject for Cincinnati, you would think, well, I will make this statement. We have, Mike, some of the best water in the United States for making bourbon whiskey. Now, you're going to sit there and go, are you kidding me? You're in Newport. What the heck are you talking about? Well, the answer is, 
in short, is we're using well water. We're going down 100 feet into what's known as the Ohio River alluvial plain. And what it is is all the water that all the seven hills and all that geologic pressure that caused the glaciers to come down and form the Ohio River, all that pressure is still out there. And it's forcing all this water under the Ohio River, and there's hundreds of miles, uh, hundreds of acres of, uh, of this water source under northern Kentucky, right where we are in Newport. And uh, the point is that it's being forced as it's moving under the river and coming up into northern Kentucky. In layman's terms, it's being filtered naturally through sand, silt, and guess what kind of rock? Limestone. limestone. Okay. And we're going 100 feet down. We don't do any filtering. It's highly. It's got a high mineral content, and it's a tremendous point of differentiation with every other distillery in Kentucky and most in the country who work on every other distillery in, in Kentucky works on river water or city water, or in the case of makers with some spring water, it's highly filtered. Ours is unfiltered, high mineral content, right out of the alluvial plain. Mm-hmm. Is it tested? Oh, we, we tested it. In fact, it's potable. Uh, we drink it. It's, it's uh, okay to drink. And, uh, of course, once it's going into distilling and it's brought up to 212 degrees, you don't have to worry about you know, any kind of issues in any case. Right, there's nothing in it at 212 degrees. Well, it, it, it vaporizes away. Right. But it is one of the key elements of, of great bourbon and rye whiskey. Good. You know, that, that, that was one of the uh, questions that I had when I moved here 23 years ago. I can remember sitting out on the old Mike Fink uh, mm-hmm. with the, uh, the people from Heinz who wanted to get my, my wife to take a job out here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I asked, where do you get the drinking water? Mm-hmm. Well, and we're out in the mic fink, and the, the speaker points at the brown water in the river. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but Cincinnati's got pretty good tasting water. Well, yeah, uh, but we were coming from L.A., where sure. the, the water came from the Blue Colorado River. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And After yeah, a long way, <laughs> a long way, but it right. came from the Colorado. So it was a sure. It was pretty big surprise to hear yeah, the, from the Ohio River. river. Exactly. When I looked down at the Ohio River. We're going to take another uh, short commercial break here, Ken, and we'll be right back after the San Luis, if, if it wants to play back. Let's listen to uh, Gary Harvey talking about San Luis number four. Hi, I'm Gary Harvey with Sandler Training. I'm here to discuss with you today rule number four, a decision not to make a decision is making a decision. Have you ever yourself, have you gone out shopping for something, you had a salesperson show you whatever it is you're looking for, and you really have an interest to buy, but you're not really sure. Flip side, you may actually realize you really don't want to buy it, but you don't want to hurt their feelings. So you use the most proverbial words in sales that salespeople don't want to hear, but they're willing to accept called the proverbial think it over. I'm a firm believer in all the salespeople that I have coached throughout my career that that really is a code for the word a slow no. I had a client recently that was proposing a fairly large project to a prospect. Prospect said, gee, you looked interesting. We have a lot of interest in what you're offering. And by the way, we really like you. So one of the things that made him feel like I've got it. So they said, let us get back to you the next week. But this looks really good, but we do need to think it over. We're a firm believer at Sandler Training that if it's going to be a think it over, nine out of 10 times, it's going to be a no, but they don't want to tell you that. We're also firm believers that if it's going to be a no, we all know this intellectually, don't we? We want to know right up front. But emotionally, we don't want to hear those words. 
So plant your feet, stay on your ground, and be willing to say to a potential client, with all due respect, Mr. or Mrs. Prospect, that decision not to make a decision really is making a decision, and it's a no in my world, and it's okay to tell me that. This is Mike Roth and Ken Lewis from the New Riff Distilling Company. Uh, Ken, we have a theory of operation here at Sandler Training and by Roth and Associates that simple solutions to complex problems are invariably wrong. And if you have to solve a complex problem, you typically need a complex solution. Perhaps you could share with our listeners a complex problem that you've run into in your career and the equally complex solution that you devised to solve it. Naturally, nothing that's going to give away a trade secret. Well, uh, it's an excellent question, Mike, and uh, I think everyone with successful business careers faces uh, a lot of complex problems. It's more and more all the time, of course, in the world we live in. I guess mine, one that jumps to mind for me is very recently, uh, as I was a retailer for all those years, 38 years, uh, and kind of at the top of my game, but I began seeing that uh, the tremendous uh, uh, boom in the bourbon business, and I thought, heck, I mean, I've got the best location in the United States for a craft distillery. I'm in Kentucky, but I'm part of greater Cincinnati. It's an absolutely gorgeous, and we got the water. So Mm -hmm. it's a gorgeous location. Now, how do I make this happen? If I think this is a trend line that, you know, can really mean something for myself and my family for generations to come. So you can see the trend line from the sales of the party source. I saw it from the sales of the party source early enough to jump on this before too many other people were building distilleries. So I could see it, but there was a critical problem, a very complex problem in the way, which is in Kentucky, as in most states, you can't be licensed as both a retailer and a manufacturer of alcoholic beverages. So I had to make a Sophie's choice, so to speak, of what I would do. And my decision was, okay, I've done this for 38 years. It may sound a little nuts, um, but I'm going to actually sell the party source. It's been a wonderful career and start a second career as a distiller despite my somewhat advanced age in my early 60s. Uh, And that's well and good, but then how to do that and how to live up to my values of caring for my employees and and, uh, trying to promote their futures as well as my own. The the complex problem of how to do this uh, was solved by a complex solution, which was an ESOP, an employee stock ownership plan, and I investigated and spent a year or more learning about the very complicated IRS and federal rules uh, governing uh, the highly tax-advantaged sale of a, of a small or medium-sized business, or even a large business, Avis is an ESOP, uh, to its own employees. And that was a very rewarding uh, research project because in the end it became uh, a win-win, which is what I think most of us uh, in life are trying to find if we can. Win-loses, I win, you lose, is a pretty bad business plan. Mm-hmm. Win-win is what makes sense. How do I profit by making you profit? And in this case, I've got 70 employee owners uh, that I feel I, I lived up to, to my – I'm walking the talk with them. I, I lived up to their expectations. I'm proud of what I did selling to them. It's the largest beverage alcohol store in the United States, and it's entirely employee-owned. And yet it freed me to go on on the same campus and become a distiller. And And I think that reputation as we go through life, Mike – in business, I'm sure you agree, comes with you. And I think that reputation for having taken care of my community and the larger community of greater Cincinnati is going to help us at New Rift Distilling. That's great. Uh, just out of curiosity for other uh, business leaders who may be 
thinking about or toying with the idea of going to an ESOP, uh, what did that round numbers of legal fees cost? Uh, in my case, I'd say it's legal fees and there's general consultant fees because there's highly specialized rules and you have to qualify and get approvals and so forth. So you need a, a whole team, like with most sales. Mm-hmm. But in my case, uh, of a $40 million company, uh, the legal and, and consulting fees is uh, between 150 and $200,000. And I don't think that's an outrageous sum of money. I think the main thing to say about the ESOP is not only is it a wonderful way to reward a lot of your career employees that helped you become successful if you're a small or medium-sized business, but the point is that an ESOP is a, uh, does not pay federal or state taxes. So there's a wonderful cash flow to help you sell the business and carry part of that uh, uh, loan to the employee, to the employee group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and how long did that take from the time you just actually decided, yep, I'm going to uh, investigate the trigger or, or from, pulling, from pulling the trigger yeah. to the point Execution. where you where you were legally free and so you could get licensed as a distiller. Yeah. Well, I, I think for the ESOP itself, it's you, you want to at least think through about a six or eight month window. You mm-hmm. have to, you have a very complex valuation that has to happen. I mean, there's a lot of legal and uh, professional work that has to happen. So six to eight months is kind of a minimum, I would think. Uh, and in my case, with all the licensing that was necessary, it took several years if you count becoming licensed as a distiller. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the land that the New Riff sits on, is that owned by New Riff, even though it's on the same campus as uh, Party Source? Well, I've continued to own that entire campus. So I own all the land and the Party Source building, even though I don't own the business. That's an employee business. And I own the land and the building of New Riff. Okay, so they're, they're actually renting the building from They me. are. The ESOP rents from me. Good, good. Uh, now let's talk about your uh, your products. You, you said bourbon and rye a couple of minutes ago. I did, uh-huh. Uh, for those people with uneducated palates, what's sure. the difference between bourbon and rye? Well, we're talking about the grains that are used to make it, what we call in the industry a mash bill. But a mash bill is just a recipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all it is, is a pr- our name for a mash bill. I mean, for a recipe. So they're going to taste different. Yeah, they're going to taste different because the whole point is that a bourbon, by federal law, has to be, at a minimum, uh, a majority or 51% of corn. It has to be corn-based. Mm-hmm. And the same is true of a rye. A rye has to be 51% or more of rye. So, And rye and corn have very different taste profiles. Corn is sweeter, much more accessible. Uh, rye is a spicier, a little heavier kind of grain. So they turn into different kinds of whiskeys. Yeah, I was just up at the uh, Farm Science uh, show Mm -hmm. outside of Columbus, and uh, I was surprised to discover that 95% of the corn grown in America is uh, genetically modified. Well, and that's one of the things about being in craft distilling is not only do we have beautiful water, in our case at New Riff, but we're very firm about having non GMO genetically modified grains. So you actually can say that your bourbon is healthier. Um, <laughs> I think you got to be careful about bourbon and healthy in the same sentence. But uh, there are some people who don't like <laughs> genetically modified. Exactly. Uh, it's it's part of it's part of the craft movement in the United States. We want to be much more local. We want to be very careful about all the ingredients. Uh, we want to be very environmentally sound in all our business practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think the opportunities and possibilities are for New Riff over the next five or ten years? Well, I'm obviously very bullish. 
because it's, uh, it takes a tremendous investment. I mean, uh, at this point, I've probably got, you know, well in excess of uh, $10, $12 million invested in this. And uh, it's a huge time investment because, again, I'm, I've got a burn rate. I'm burning cash for three and a half, four years. Um, so we're heavily involved. I obviously believe uh, that there's a tremendous future to craft distilling in, in general and to bourbon in Kentucky in particular. Uh, and again, I say I think I have the best location in the United States here because I'm in Kentucky, but part of greater Cincinnati. Uh, every single what we call heritage distillery in Kentucky in the last uh, year has either expanded or is in the process of expanding. And these are all owned by the biggest global drinks company, and they're doing some pretty serious research, and they're investing hundreds of millions of dollars in Kentucky in, distil- in expanding or opening distilleries. So that shows what they think the potential is, not just in the United States, but in in uh, uh, the rest of the world. Max Shapiro, who owns, uh, his family owns Heaven Hill Distilling, uh, once said a few years ago, you know, if uh, only 1% of the people in the, in, the, in the world, other than the United States, who currently drink scotch, 1% of the scotch drinkers switch to bourbon, Kentucky would be empty overnight. That's the kind of potential that's out there as the rest of the world starts catching up to America. Because after all, bourbon is our is the only American uh, spirit product. It's the only one that uh, has to be made in the United States. And it's got a wonderful, sweet, mixable corn flavor, much more accessible for a lot of people in the Far East, for instance, than scotch. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Um, have you ever... Uh, y- your children aren't in the business. Uh, my daughter is in an allied business. She's a wine importer of Italian wines and has mm-hmm. a great palate. And as we get to the point, let me put it this way. She's 36 years old. She said, Dad, at the point you can afford to pay me to be your sales manager, the same amount I'm currently making, I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, I think that's also a little bit of a, a statement about that generation. But I thought it was a fair comment. She says she wants to be treated at arm's length. She would like to join the business. But she's got a life to live, and she needs to make a paycheck. And uh, when I can afford, afford her, she's she's ready to come. So it's a it, it is an exit strategy. It, it's it's certainly headed to a family business, which is a wonderful thing. That's that's a good thing. We one of the strengths of the Cincinnati market, Northern Kentucky market, over the years has been the strength of the family businesses here, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. continuous uh, in between the generations passing the businesses yeah. on. Yeah people who can effectively handle the business. Correct. Uh, how many employees does uh, do you have right now at, at New Rift? Well, with the brewery, the event center, and the distillery, all three of those, we have about 15 full-time employees and a handful of uh, part-time employees. Uh, what's your forecast look like for adding employees over the next few years? Well, in the last just month or two, we've, we've uh, entered into several lucrative contracts to distill for some other people, which has really raised our production rate. So we've hired uh, at least four full-time people just recently. So uh, we started with about uh, 10 full-time folks. Mm-hmm. So it's not a heavy, they're, they're good jobs and well-paid jobs, uh, meaningful work and a lot of pride in it. Um, it doesn't take a large number of people um, to do distilling and, and brewing. Mm-hmm. So you could take on work for other distillers? Yes, yes, we, we have. We've we've fallen into a very uh, good piece of timing because, uh, again, I mentioned the bourbon boom. 
and every one of the heritage distillers, the big large distilleries, mm-hmm. uh, has stopped distilling for anyone but themselves because they want all the product for themselves. So there's a lot of people out there looking for a Kentucky distiller to make a product for them, and we're we get phone I get phone calls every week. That's a great business to be in. People are calling a little it. bit of luck. You, yeah, I'm sure you admit uh, you agree that. Uh, uh, for all the brains and all the hard work, you also need a little serendipity and luck. Sure, being in the right place at the right time. Yes, sir. Some people say that's 80% of selling. It it, it makes sense to me. You know, got to show up. If you don't show up, you don't get the business. <laughs> you do have to show up. Uh, on the Internet, uh, are you doing anything special? Well, of course, like everyone today, we have a uh, uh, what we think is a pretty sophisticated website, Uh but as everyone knows, all your listeners know, it's it's a lot of it's about social media. Uh, I'm fortunate to have a good crew of young people that really understand uh, social media, and uh, we try and communicate a lot on all the usual channels, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, um, and uh, communicate to uh, a loyalty group, our Ranger program. So, uh, yes, I think it's extremely valuable. Our tours are all signed up for on our website, and it is obviously the way to communicate, especially when you don't have a huge... Uh, I ate at a Chinese restaurant uh, the other day, and I got this fortune cookie. I thought I'd read it on the show today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will soon emerge victorious from a maze you've been traveling in. Okay, I like that. I thought that was a particularly good saying. You brought up fortune cookies. That was a fortune. The ones that irritate me, it's one of my little things, is... Um, I don't like going and they give you sayings instead of fortunes. <laughs> right. You got a fortune. Good for you. I, I, uh, I, I remember being in a Chinese restaurant in San Francisco getting a fortune cookie. And uh, I was single. I was there with, uh, with my girlfriend. We opened up the mm-hmm. fortune cookie and it said you'll be married within a year. <laughs> <laughs> did it come true? Yes, it did come true. All right. <laughs> uh, I want to thank you, Ken, for being on the show today. Well, thank you. I want for to give you a copy of uh, Sandler's first book. Thank you. Uh, you can't teach a kid to ride a bike at a seminar. Uh, in that, you'll find a copy of our training calendar and a, a free pass to come into one of our, our sessions anytime it fits your schedule. You. Uh, and probably there's a million dollars in there that I help people make. Very good. Uh, thank you, sir. Ken, thanks again for being on the show. Would you uh, take it away? Thanks for listening. This program is the property of Sandler Training by Roth & Associates, Inc. The show may be distributed only with written permission and then only in its entirety. If you have any questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.